Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. This is the Upward Call, number two, entitled to all the saints. I am Pastor Eric Newcomer of White's Run Baptist Church, and I'm here today to tell you a little bit about the letter to the Philippians written by Paul. This is a letter that is powerfully important as all of them are in scripture. This one gives us a great glimpse into what it means to live this Christian life. It's written by Paul from prison, and one of the key words in it is the word joy. So that right there ought to get our curiosity going. We ought to be asking the question, how, how can this guy talk so much about joy when he's writing to these people from prison, these people that he loves, he misses them. It's very obvious. We're going to see that today. And what we're going to do is we're going to see that his priorities are entirely centered around this upward call in Jesus Christ, the call to be more like him, the call to follow him, the call to share not only in his eternal life, but in his difficulties and his suffering, and to be able to count it all joy. And today, uh, what we're going to do is I want to explain to you what this upward call is. The upward call is to be like Jesus Christ. And the series is focused on developing within ourselves as Christians the mindset and the practices that produce progress in response to this call. This will encourage us to strain forward, as Paul puts it, to what lies ahead, and then we'll be able to help others to do the same. So for the background to today's message, you might want to listen to the first message in the series, which is taken from Acts chapter 16. In fact, go ahead and read all of Acts chapter 16. We didn't cover it all, but it's all about the founding of this church in Philippi. And we uh, pick up now with the letter in Philippians chapter 1. So we're going to look in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's take a look at that together. It begins like this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these these words of Paul, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit to inspire him to write these and the church to preserve them uh, for us down to this age. And Lord, we pray that you will give us understanding of these things. You will help us in our walk with you. You will help us to glorify you as Paul did, as the Philippian church did. Lord, let us be partakers of grace with them. And Lord, I pray that today you are known through the reading 
and through the exposition of your scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have an interesting uh, beginning to this letter. It's actually fairly standard. Paul's writing from prison to a church he founded. Uh, he founded it with Timothy, Luke, Silas, maybe some others. It was the first church in Europe. The uh, first converts that we read about in Acts chapter 6, uh, among them was a woman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple, so an independent businesswoman was apparently successful. She's not originally from Philippi, but she was there probably because of her business. There was no synagogue in Philippi, uh, so they didn't have much of a, a Jewish influence when Paul arrived. But there were many converts there, and it was a strong church lasting a great deal of time. So after Paul stirred up a little trouble there, he's thrown in jail. It's a very interesting story. You'll have to read it in Acts 16. Uh, they were asked to leave Philippi, but Paul came back and visited later, and he wrote to them, and he kept in contact through Timothy and others that were sent back and forth as messengers. The uh, opening of the letter the audience is stated plainly, and that brings to bear for all of us the meaning of the rest of the letter. really sets off uh, how we're to understand this letter is to understand who it is written to and what that means. Well, we see that the letter, letter is written to the saints. In Philippians 1.1, it says, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, this is fairly standard for Paul to open a letter this way and address it to all the saints. And this is important because we take for granted this important point that the audience of the letter is relevant to us. We need to know to whom he is writing. And what he is doing in this content of this letter, and indeed even the upward call of Christ itself, is a call to each and every one of us, from the least to the greatest, oldest to youngest, wisest to foolish, etc., etc. It is for everybody that is in Jesus Christ. It says, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And it's interesting that it does say with the overseers and deacons. The reason why that's an important point is that they are lumped in with everyone else. He's not necessarily making a distinction for overseers and deacons. He's including them in the whole. In other words, this is for both the leader and the layperson, as they're called. And this is the way it is with the New Testament. This word saint refers indeed to all believers. And this is uh, no small point. It's no minor point because uh, in the Roman church in the centuries that followed uh, the beginning of Christianity and the Christianity we see in the New Testament, it became a habit to pick out particular people who had accomplished great things in the name of Christ uh, in the Roman church and to give them the title of saint to in order to venerate them. And then later came some, some very unusual practices of actually praying to them. But we know Jesus is our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. Uh, no one should be brought up to that point. Uh, we pray as Jesus taught us to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I don't want to digress on that too long, but basically it's to understand this. We have to reshape our thinking and understand this word saint refers in the New Testament to each 
and every believer. And this is powerfully important. The word means holy ones. It means holy ones. It means those that are set apart. Now, in the uh, in the early church, uh, they went around, they assigned leadership at the local church level. So there was no need to travel, no need to make a phone call to consult with the leadership. Of course, they didn't have phones, but they, Paul and Timothy and the others, they went past, they went back to the places that they had started churches, they assigned local leadership from within the congregation there, and that's how they were expected to continue in their leadership with local leadership. So there were self-governing bodies spread throughout the new spread throughout the world at that time. And Paul, even though he was granted and, and he was a founder of many of these churches, he was granted apostolic authority by the Lord Jesus himself, Paul numbers himself among the saints. Look in Ephesians 3 8 there, and what you see in that letter, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. So, in speaking of his call to preach to the Gentiles, he says very plainly, I'm the least of all the saints, which shows us he counted himself among the saints. So, the saints includes the overseers, which would be elders, uh, the deacons. Uh, even the apostles themselves. And so Paul is making an important point by using this word. This is how he used it. This is from the Bible what it means. And all of the saints are in Christ. And so this speaks not only of our equality in the church, of all of us being saints together, but all of us being in Christ. In other words, our holiness, our being set apart, our sainthood is a matter of position, a position that is found in Jesus Christ. It is not something we attain to. It is not a qualification that we meet because of something inherent in us or something accomplished by us. And so the upward call begins with an assignment, and that's the word saints. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, as Paul describes the saints and as he opens his letter there, look at how he puts it there. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, now that means made saints, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So this is uh, an important point to see. Everyone everywhere that is a believer in Jesus Christ uh, has been called to that position and is then called a saint. And that means holy ones set apart, set aside. It's only that when we begin that upward journey, walking at the side uh, to his ultimate revelation, his eternal presence, that is when we begin to understand what it means to be set apart, to be a saint. This journey begins with God. It is a call of God, and it continues with God in that walk with Him. It is true that no one needs Christianity to try to be a good person. 
This is something that we see. There are other religions. There are other methods in which people try to be what we would call on planet Earth here, good people. But we need to understand that is a relative term. And relative to God, there is no good person, according to Romans chapter 3. And what we see, though, in the world is we see people from this internal impulse that they have. The Romans explains it as the law of God written on our hearts. And we have a conscience that bears witness to this truth that people try to do better. They strive to do better. They have some kind of moral idea, even though we widely disagree on those moral ideas. Nevertheless, there is some standard of morality. These things are given by God. They're distorted by the fall. They're misunderstood unless we are found to be in Christ. And yet that shows us that they're trying to move toward God. It is an internal uh, impulse that we have that was given by God. And people will then try to do some kind of good works. They'll try to endear themselves to God in some way. And then they are trying to be what we would call holy. They're trying to be different, set apart unto God. But God does not recognize degrees of holiness as people do. We are either holy by his edict or we are not. The natural man trying to reach upward is really getting nowhere. And the way of man's religion is really not a path to anywhere. It's not a relationship with God. So this, these endeavors, apart from Jesus Christ, are, are futile, upward stretch. It's like trying to scale Mount Everest itself with nothing but an afternoon's walk. We're not equipped and we're not capable of doing so. It is an endeavor that must be empowered by God. This is why we begin with this designation of holy ones. This designation of holy ones tells us that we are set apart by God, that we are dedicated to God and his purposes. And so the idea of saints are the holy ones, those that are set apart unto God and his purposes. So sometimes, you know, when you study the, a word like this, we have a certain meaning in our cultural context, and we have to get around that. We have to go back to the biblical context and see what it really means. Because some people will say, you know what, I thought that word meant um, that it was someone who was pure or spotless, that a holy one or a saint was someone without sin. Now, the word does have that kind of sense to it in the Bible, but it strictly means set apart to God and his purposes. The reason why it has the sense of someone who is pure or without sin is because in the Bible, the context is that you're set apart to God and to his purposes. So in that sense, it should be someone without spot or blemish. It should be someone fitting to the part to be a servant of God. It is right to think that someone who claims to be a saint or claims to be holy is somehow different, is somehow set apart, is somehow equipped by God for the purpose. And that would mean being free from the encumbering sins of this world. And so someone holy should indeed look the part. 
And so the word does carry this moral tone to it as one who is pure, one who is set apart to God in their behavior. But the behavior follows the designation of being a saint. If you are set apart to God in Christ, you are holy already. Remember what Jesus told his disciples on the night that they shared the Passover meal, the night that he was arrested uh, and eventually taken to be crucified. He told them, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And this is when he was washing their feet. And he was showing them, you're already set apart. You're already distinct because you've been chosen by me. But what you're going to have to do is regularly wash your feet. And you're going to have to do this for each other. In other words, this was a command to kind of keep each other accountable, to confess your sins one to another. It was a very important thing that we understand what he was doing there. Jesus also said that you will be distinct, that the world will know you because you have a love for one another. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they obey my commands. And he told his disciples on that night, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Over and over in the New Testament, obedience to God is a mark of being his. Not the cause of being his, but the evidence So to be called saints is a reminder of your position and your purpose in Jesus Christ. You are a saint and you must become comfortable with that title. If you're not, strive to be worthy of it. That's kind of the point. Your motivations to strive to be worthy of it and and to have this word saint, your motivations now will include, number one, the fact that it was not your idea. You were called to be a saint. And that should be a motivating factor for you because it wasn't something you invented. It's not something you can easily put down because you've been appointed by God to do it. If it was something that you chose yourself and something you wanted to do of your own accord, then you would be at liberty to put it back down again. You know, in in human terms, we have rights to those things which we create. In other words, if I write a poem or a song or something, and I can get it copyrighted, and that means that no one else can use it without uh, my permission because it's mine. I made it, I created it. And that's how many people are living their Christian life. They're like, it's my life, I made it, I created it, and so they choose whether they go to church on Sunday or not, they choose whether they're going to read the Bible, they choose whether they're going to love one another and do ministry and reach out and tell the truth of Jesus Christ, They choose all these things because they think it's all their idea. But if we take on this title saint and we embrace it, what it means is we are set apart. And the idea of being set apart is a passive thing. In other words, we're not the ones doing the setting. It's God. He's doing the setting. He is setting us apart. And therefore, this is all his idea. That becomes our motivation then to accomplish this. This is something that he gave to us, and it is a blessing, not a burden. He has lifted the burden of sin, which is far worse. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It is light. And so this is powerfully important motivation. So it's important to understand this is not our idea. Just being called saints tells us that. Also, being called saints tells us something else. If we're set set apart to God and his purposes, he accomplishes his purposes 
according to his word and the power of his spirit. And so we're not doing things in our own power. And then we're going to see from the text here that Jesus Christ is faithful to bring these things to completion. So three things there that are great motivation from this title of saint is this. Number one, it's not your idea. Number two, it's not done in your power and strength. And number three, it is Christ that is faithful to bring it to completion. Look at verse uh, 6 here. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the journey both begins with God and it ends with God. And this is very important for us to understand. If this journey both begins and ends with God, then we have the confidence to join him in it. We have the confidence that this is going to work out, that he is going to bring this to completion. Paul says this another way in Ephesians chapter 1, fantastic chapter for understanding what it is that he has done for us. Look how he says it here. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed with him, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in other words, as soon as you believed, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit of God, which is a down payment, a guarantee. If you have the Holy Spirit, it is your promise that you're going to have it all one day, that you're going to have this eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. Now, I want to illustrate this for you, and I have no idea how this is going to come out or look on, uh, on your uh, version there, but let's, let's take a look. Um, we're among the masses there, the plain people down there on our journey through life, walking through life. And then what happens is we hear the gospel, we believe. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're taken from death to life and we're set apart unto him at that moment. At that moment, we are different. At that moment, we are called saints. And then what he does in this setting us apart as we begin to embrace this new life in Jesus Christ, he puts us on a path, on a journey, a specific journey to do the things that he wants us to do. And he lays out that path ahead of us. This is the upward call and our lives is this journey upward. He completes it as it says there in the scripture in the day of Jesus Christ. That is at the end when we meet him or when we are called up to be with him, this is something that is brought to total completion. And this is a powerful and, and amazing thing for us to understand that we are on this journey now, let's catch a glimpse from the text of what that journey means along the way. If we look, starting back here in verse 3, you notice that Paul is relating to them how he prays for them. And look what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So he's praying and he's telling them, I pray and I'm thankful for you. 
and here is why I'm thankful for you. And he starts to lay out some very good reasons why he's so thankful for them. And some of those reasons include this. The upward journey is this, a partnership in the gospel. He is thankful to God that they have partnered with him in the gospel. How did they partner? Well, they've been helping Paul to support him, uh, both financially, but also in other intangible ways. They have been a support for Paul. They have sent a servant that we'll read about later in the letter to come minister to Paul's needs. And so they have supported him and been partners in the gospel. But they're also partners in the gospel in this sense that every believer is called into partnership in the gospel. With your local body of believers, you're to be playing a role, a part, according to the gifts God has given you, to contribute to the expansion and the putting forth of the gospel from your local church. So he's uh, this partnership in the gospel. In this, we are partaking of grace. And this partaking of grace is something I, I want to speak about just a moment because let's look back at our scripture here. In our scripture here, he says in verse 7, um, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Oh, grace is always a good thing because grace, that idea means gift. And interestingly, it's related to the word joy, which is one of the main, you know, one of the very important words in this letter. And so this idea of a gift of grace, you know, we think, oh, this is something handed down from God. This has got to be good stuff. But look what he goes on to say. What is the grace? He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the grace, he actually sees it in his imprisonment. And because, and he'll go on to explain later in the chapter, and we'll get to that next time, that even his imprisonment is advancing the gospel. And for that reason, he calls it grace, and he gives thanks because they're taking part in it with him. Oh, these are powerful, important truths for us to understand. What is along this journey for us? We will be partaking of grace. We will be partners in the gospel. He has a yearning and affection for the saints. You can tell by reading the words of Paul's prayer here that he is feels very strongly about these people, that there's a strong affection, a strong connection to these people, a great concern for their well-being. This is love, and this is love demonstrated here in the person of Paul. There's also, of course, abounding love, and this is his prayer for them. So not only does he say what he's thankful about, it is in his prayers as he says here, look, um, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And that love comes with two additional things, knowledge, and discernment. You can see it right there in the middle there. That your love would abound with knowledge and discernment. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he means basically by that, this knowledge would be knowledge of God that is relational knowledge, not just knowledge about God. This is knowledge of God. You can have knowledge about a person, but when you have knowledge of that person, that means you know them. 
that this is someone you can describe. This is someone you have spent time with. This is someone you know their preferences, their likes and their dislikes, their personality and things like that. This is an experiential knowledge of God. And I'll remind you, this is precisely how Jesus defined eternal life. He defined eternal life in terms of knowledge of him and the Father. In other words, eternal life to Jesus was the relationship. And in the upward call, what we need to understand is he doesn't set us on a journey, leave us and meet us at the top. He is with us every step of the way. This is what Jesus said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And he said that in the context of two chapters of text almost in the book of John about the Holy Spirit, the other comforter, the other one like Jesus who would come and empower us and comfort us and be with us and help us in our prayers and guide us into all truth and help us indeed even with discernment. That is to be able to tell what is good, what is not. To be able to tell what is of God and what is not of God. To be able to tell what inside our hearts is something put there by the Holy Spirit or something there that's just our idea. This is discernment. And love requires discernment. Love requires discernment that we be able to tell in the Lord what is right, what is wrong, how we ought to proceed in anything that we do. Well, these are wonderful things that the upward journey includes. And there's even more that it includes. It includes the fruit of righteousness. He says, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, he wants us to carry into heaven a great big bag full of good works that we have done. Great big things that are praiseworthy, that are things that we can be proud of, enduring things. Remember, we're told in the Bible to work for those things that will endure the judgment, that will go on through the fire and still maintain their value. Precious things, precious metals and gems that they're referred to as the fruit of righteousness. And there's also great joy found in here. And joy is in this upward call. This is a key thing that Paul says all along. Look what he says here. He says, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, he begins this thing by saying uh, that he prays with joy. And I've included in your notes uh, a highlight or of where this word joy appears. It appears several times. And like I said, it's related to this word for thanking, to the word grace, that these are of the same kind of word group. And so this becomes a very major theme here. Paul is writing from prison and he's talking about his joy. And the reason why he has joy for these people is because they are partaking in this upward call. They are on their way. And he is giving joy. They're partnering in the gospel. They are partaking of grace with him. They are seeing the grace of God work in the things that are going on, even his imprisonment. And so he is writing and he is praying because they are involved in this upward call. He is thankful. He is joyous of what they are accomplishing. If you want contentment in Jesus Christ, if you want even better joy in Christ, 
And joy is something that's beyond happiness because Paul's expressing joy here from prison. In other words, it's not something dependent upon situation. Otherwise, he's probably not happy about it, but he's got joy. And joy is better because it's an internal thing. It's between you and God. No one can take it from you. If you want that in your life, if you desire more of that in your Christian walk, let your priorities come in line with the priorities of Jesus Christ. If you notice what Paul was joyful about, if you notice what he was praying about, all those things are in line with the priorities of Christ, that we would have love, that we would partake in his grace, that we would be partners in the gospel. All of these things are contained in the will of God for us. This is the will of God for you. It's not something you have to, to you know, embark on a, on a great monastic journey. Uh, you don't have to take a vow of silence and spend months on end in solitude to determine this because it's right there in the Word of God for you. You look, what is Paul thankful about? What is Paul urging them to do? How does Paul pray for them? And it's all right there in these verses. And this is the will of God. And if we make those priorities our priorities, we will have joy. So a lack of joy in the Christian life is often a lack of response to this upward call in Christ. A lack of joy is often a lack of response to this upward call. Let me uh, bring to you some application here today. First of all, my advice to you would be this. Make Paul's prayers your own. Make Paul's prayers your own. Let me take you back to this just momentarily and take a look at some of the things that he's thankful about here. Okay, He's thankful about the partnership in the gospel. Pray that you'll be a partner in the gospel and the people around you in your church. Um, pray that he will continue to work in you and bring it to completion. He wants to do that. If you pray for it, you're going to receive it. It's right for me to feel this way because you're partakers of me with grace. Ask to be a greater partaker of grace. Ask to see his grace. Ask for it to be more plain to you. Grace is an important thing. Look here. Um, yearn with the affection of Christ Jesus. Pray to have this affection. You know, I've got to be honest. When I became a believer in Jesus Christ, I really didn't like people. I mean, that was my problem is how am I going to get along with people? How am I going to love people? I don't really even like people. I'd just rather be alone, you know, all day, every day, and I'd be happy about it. But I found that joy is better than happiness. Pray that love would abound with knowledge and discernment. Pray that we would be found pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pray that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And then... Give all the glory and all the praise to God. That is how you take a prayer like this and make it your own. Pray it over yourself. Pray it over your church. Pray it for one another. Get together and pray these things for one another with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Secondly, present yourself as a living sacrifice. If we take a look in Romans chapter 12, Paul puts there something really powerful to us. He says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, here in verse 12. Holy and acceptable to God. See, this is holy. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. And then he says, stop being conformed. I know it says, do not be conformed, but it really means stop being conformed to the world. 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that will bring discernment. That will show you what is good and acceptable and perfect. So be renewed in this way. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Just say, God, just take me, do with me what you will. When you are surrendering your will to his, then he is going to work wonderful things in you and bring to pass all the promises he has made. Thirdly, I'd say meditate upon what God has done for you and pray to have a proper response to it. I refer you to the book of Ephesians. That will explain what God has done for you, how he has saved you, what it cost him, and indeed what he has done for you. In that passage, it says that we're already seated in the heavenly places and that we are the inheritors of a great heavenly inheritance. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Both these passages in the book of Ephesians will help you. And then finally, seek wise counsel among God's people. Seek wise counsel among God's people. There is no substitute for personal one-on-one engagement. And I know you're watching this online right now, fully aware of that. I, I make this for your benefit. And indeed, it can be very beneficial. We should always be listening to good sermons, reading good books written by Christian people, reading the Bible primarily, but also other good books and helpful books, and listening to sermons and, and things like that that can edify us. But ultimately, we have got to be face-to-face with another believer in Jesus Christ to seek their counsel. It is how we can be objective. It's how we can discern the Spirit Remember, Jesus said there's a special blessing for our gathering together. He says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Now, in the midst of them is different than the Holy Spirit being in your heart, in you. This is something different. Jesus said, I'll be there in the midst of them, among them. So individually, by ourselves, all day, every day, everywhere we go, we have the Spirit of God. We have the presence of Jesus Christ right there. But then when two of us come together, there's something more. And if you've ever experienced good fellowship with believers in Christ, then you'll know what I'm talking about. So seek wise counsel among his people. So finally, what I want to urge you to do is just embrace these things. Listen to the rest of the series. Read this letter over and over to see what God has for you in this upward call. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this day for what you have done for us, what you have given us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you grant us the faith to grab hold of it. Show us, Lord, what you have for us, and and then just give us the will to, to take hold, to present ourselves to you for what you will do with us, because we know that on this journey with you, there is great joy. There is great fruitfulness. We will see lives changed, including our own, and we will see your work, and we will see your glory. Grant us a glimpse of it this day as we move toward you in faith, as we surrender ourselves to you, as we desire to make known your gospel to all those around us. Equip us, change us, and make yourself known in your people this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to uh, get hold of us here at White's Run Baptist Church. You can do so 
by finding us online. You can find us at whitesrun.org and learn more about us there. You can email us directly at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can also, of course, join us uh, on any given Sunday. We have our worship service at 11 a.m., and so hopefully that will be available to you. But please, uh, reach out to us, write to us, let us know how we're doing, and ask any questions. We will help you.